Welcome to the Down the Hatch podcast. In this, our 22nd episode, we have a different type of topic than you're probably used to hearing. It's about gender issues in communication, sciences, and disorders. The authors of the paper that we're talking about include Nicole Puglia, myself, Ianessa Humbert, Christine Kolamainen, and Molly Carnes. You'll notice that Alicia Vos is not in this podcast, and that's because we are celebrating a special moment in her life, which is that she has given birth to Hudson Scott Simpson, who is about three weeks old. So she's obviously got her hands tied with other things. Anyway, congratulations. We certainly miss her on this topic, but she'll be back for the next Down the Hatch podcast. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this lively discussion with Dr. Rogas Puglia. Enjoy. I'm super, super, super excited about this topic. It's not just about swallowing. It is about the field of communication sciences and disorders. And in my opinion, it extends to many other fields um, of all kinds of backgrounds from architecture all the way to medicine. Um, We, as many of you guys know, are in a female dominated field. I believe we're about 95% female. Um, And so what that means is that there's this assumption that women absolutely are the drivers completely or have 95% of the um, accolades. Well, who we have today um, is a special guest, somebody who I've known for many years, who did a postdoc where I did my postdoc and her name is Nicole Puglia. I'm gonna have her tell you who she is, have her introduce herself, and then um, we'll go from there. Hi, thank you so much for having me, ENS. I'm Nicole Rogas Puglia. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in the Departments of Medicine and Surgery, and also director of the Swallowing and Salivary Bioscience Lab at the Madison VA Hospital. So how I met Nicole was a very um, um, aspiring and sought after future Dr. Rogas Pooley, at the time she had not finished her PhD, um, pulled me aside at a meeting many years ago and said, I'm thinking about doing a postdoc where you did your postdoc. She had just finished her postdoc, her doctoral degree, or was getting ready to finish with Dr. Jerry Logaman. So she was obviously from amazing pedigree and was moving on to thinking about doing a postdoc with Joanne Robbins where she did complete her postdoc. And it was refreshing that she, she was just a refreshing human being. Everyone who knows Nicole knows that's who she is. But since then, we've continued to communicate just about life and kids and, uh, you know, being a speech pathologist with PhD who focus on swallowing. So we have a lot in common. And so, Nicole, if you don't mind, I'd like to start out with how we ended up writing a paper that is entitled, what's the title, Nicole? I've already forgotten. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's easy when you kind of move through, through these things to forget. So our final title that we had accepted is How Gender Stereotypes May Limit Female Faculty Advancement in Communication Sciences and Disorders. Boom. That is a title, right? So how (laughs) how are two swallowing experts who our whole career was really focused on swallowing, 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 or whatever we're interested in in terms of the physiology of something, how did we end up writing a paper about our field that extends, it takes from so many other fields, but extends to so many others as well? Well, 
uh, I recall that Nicole came, you came to the critical thinking and dysphagia management course that Dr. Plowman and I do and happened to be the one in Gainesville. And because you were coming to Gainesville, we really wanted you to give a talk to our group. Um, and so just before the talk, you and I just sat down and started gabbing. And I had mentioned to you that I was just physically at ASHA reviewing grants. No, I wasn't reviewing grants. So I was doing one of the mentoring training programs they have there. Right. And where I was yeah. seated, I happened to be facing the wall where they put pictures of people who had recently received ASHA's highest honor, which is ASHA honors. Um, and I noticed that there were half of the people, a little, maybe a little bit more than half or just about half were males. And I thought, that's interesting. They must have had a, a good year because if there are 4.7% males in our field and 50% of them got um, ASHA honors, that is actually pretty extraordinary, right? I mean, honestly, oh, yeah. it, think about it this way. If half the people there were black, everyone would be like, oh, snap. Let me find out because <laughs> yeah. I've never met a black SLP. Oh, wait, maybe I know <laughs> yeah. one, but I'm not sure. Like, that would be like, or did they all get the award that year? Like, all five of them? Like, what happened, right? We'd all be saying that. So I saw that and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I said to, to, Nicole, uh, to um, Emily, who was sitting next to me, I said, hey, check. I, I may have texted her because I wasn't paying attention. Forgive me, Asha. And I said, check out that wall. It's kind of interesting that 50% are males. And she's like, huh, that is interesting considering I know so few male SLPs or SLPs who are male don't want it. Get the, get the order wrong there, right? It's like stutterers, right, right, right. people who stutter. Let me get that together. Um, so <laughs> so basically, um, I, we happened to run into Margaret Rogers, who is in charge of research for ASHA. I mean, I've got the title perfectly, but she's always been great at inviting us to things where we can contribute. Um, and I said to her, I said, hey, that was kind of, we, we were talking about that. And she goes, actually, this is the first year that women have received parity. Before this, women, men always got more than 50%. And we were stunned. We were stunned. So you right. and I had this conversation and it extended from some things from the meeting where the discussion, the meeting ended the day before. And I specifically remember you saying, it's a little frustrating to hear people say things like, uh, I can't get a fluoro. I can't get the people at my job to respect me, the physicians and often males, uh, it's difficult to interact with these radiologists, et cetera, because I'm just this little SLP. And you said your husband never has, to, your husband is an ER doc. Um, yeah, and, that's right. And yep. he, when he needs an x-ray, he just gets him an x-ray. He's like, get me an x-ray, bro. Yep. Like, he's not like, happened. I just yeah. want to know, I want to beg. <laughs> and you were like, it's so frustrating. You tried to explain this to him and he was like, just ask for the floor. Yeah. What are you talking about? It You're like, it's not that easy. At all. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Compared to the CT scans he orders every shift, you know, our radiation exposure is so low. So to him, it's just shocking that we have any issue at all. Exactly. Yeah. And because of our, we both went to University of Wisconsin for our postdocs. We were both in the similar program that was at my, the time I was there was directed by Molly Carnes. And I learned so yes. much from Molly Carnes, who was the senior author on this paper because of her work of women in medicine. And I never thought that at any point it would actually be something that I would be uh, collaborating with anybody on. I just thought it would be tips of the trades for someone who's a physician, who's someone who's a female in a male-dominated scientific environment, but not so much for me because what does it matter for me? I work with women is what I was thinking. Right. But in, right. Retrospect, <laughs> in retrospect, it's actually been really effective because I work with women who, although they are greater in number, 
oftentimes, not all of them, oftentimes have difficulty interacting with people who are both male and have more say-so in their setting and earn more respect because they're physicians. And it's difficult for them to ask to both educate and influence these individuals. Now, I'm not saying it's because they're female. It might not be, but I thought the first thing that we should consider is, and this was your idea, you said, let's write a paper about our field. We can't control those other fields directly, but what are we doing? Is that What do you remember right. about that conversation? Yeah, um, yeah, I think it was just really refreshing for me, you know, having been, as you mentioned, in the same fellowship in Molly, Dr. Carnes was my program fellowship director as well. And so as part of my fellowship, I took the course on women's leadership. Um, and there was a specific focus on academic medicine. And my initial reaction was the same as yours. How would this have any applicability to our field when we're predominantly female? But re what really struck a chord um, in that course is when they made the analogy with nursing and talked about female dominated fields and um, some of the issues that happen in those fields with leadership of there being you know, a greater proportion of men in leadership positions, even in female-dominated fields. And so I just started to reflect on my own experience, you know, going through undergraduate and graduate and seeing so many male students go on to pursue um, doctoral training when I had, you know, colleagues or fellow students who, you know, were women and decided, you know, maybe not to pursue. And so it just kind of got the wheels turning. And then I remember when I came to visit, I was actually in the process of negotiating my faculty position at University of Wisconsin. And really looking, you know, for some guidance kind of through that process. And I think really coming up against some of these um, issues related to women and negotiation um, that we can get into a little bit um, at that time and just being able to really connect with you on that um, and just kind of see what your experience was. And then, and then it just kind of led to this discussion, which has just, I think, been so important for us to start to delve into the data around this as well. Yeah. And the thing for me is that it was not only was it a good release of, hey, are you feeling this as well? Yeah, it turned into yeah. something, a conversation that could be helpful for many other people. Not everyone's thinking, oh, the women need to hear it. I think everybody needs to hear this. Um, and so what I want to do is we start out the paper with why is this an issue? Um, and so I just want to talk about some numbers that we put in there. So as I said before, when we wrote the paper, maybe it's slightly changed. There were 4.7% males in communication sciences and disorders. However, about 26% go on to get doctoral degrees, 20% go on to get research doctoral degrees, 38% um, are full professors, where only 25% of females are full professors. What that means is you've achieved the highest level uh, in, act the, well, one maybe not emeritus, but the highest level of uh, profession professorship in academia. 37% right. are tenure track, which means they're moving toward that full professor um, are males, and only 26% are tenure track that are females. 33% have been ASHA fellows, 29% have been department chairs, and in between 1940 and 2015, 62% of males have received honors. Mm. And yeah. in the last year was the first year that women were about 50%. So Nicole, I know in other fields, there tends to be a salary gap as well. That's something that people, if you will, can take home to the bank, right? And people might be, hey, I never wanted that leadership position, but nobody's like, oh, I never wanted that financial um, uh, extension of my value. Um, right. Is there a salary gap? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. We actually did do statistical comparisons to look at salary for male faculty across faculty rank. So regardless, assistant, associate, or full versus uh, female faculty. And there is a $9,000 uh, difference between mean base salary for male faculty, regardless of rank, and mean base salary for female faculty. And the difference is the greatest for those at full professor. So at full professor level, it's an $11,000 difference. Hey, that's an awesome family vacation. Uh, yeah, I can think of a lot of a lot of great, great applications for that. that wow. Money. Yeah. Wow. So there, so there's <laughs> yeah, another so, there. So it, it doesn't just play into you got the promotion. It plays into when promoted. You're let's say you get promoted step by step. Everyone is um, in lockstep, a man and a woman. They're in lockstep in terms of getting promoted at the right time. It exactly, you know, within their careers, if we look at them parallelly. But what you're saying right. is when the man gets promoted, not every single time, but sometimes statistically, you can see that they get more for that promotion. That's right. Yep. And this is recent data as of 2016. So it's not, this is not an issue that we've resolved. We need to address it for sure. So here's the thing that first came to mind when I saw the first draft you sent me and I sent me sent me and read those numbers is a lot of times women will blame men for their lack of advancement. But based on what I'm seeing here, they don't have the numbers to vote themselves in quite the way that they have. You know what I'm saying? Like that is so crazy to me. So this is not at all a male bashing situation. This is not a woman yeah. bashing situation. This is a situation where we need to just look at the data and see if we can understand what the issues are. And you really brought it home, and I'll let you jump in whenever. You brought it home when you talked about where our field is going. And sometimes, sometimes we don't always pick the best person because of implicit bias and the idea that this is the stereotypical leader, this is stereotypical smartest person, and it might may or may not be our field has done well, that's not the issue. But is it possible that because we have, as women, and that women too can be, minorities can be sometimes the worst, mm, as a black person I'll say perhaps oppressors, meaning sometimes the things that we've been told about ourselves we believe and we indirectly then put that on other people who look like, like us. Um, or right. have whatever trade it is that people are putting down. And so you really mm -hmm. brought that point home and you really explained it really well. So what do you mind jumping in on, explain yeah. these numbers, Nicole, like what did we yeah, say in yeah. the paper? Well, I think one of the key points here just to bring to everyone's attention is this issue of disproportionate representation of men in these different areas. So, you know, you might say, well, it's still only 38%, you know, full professor, you know, that's not, you know, the majority, because I think that was some of our initial response to reviews, or at least it's been the response when I talk about this with others as well, the majority, you know, of, of uh, full professors are still women. So what's the concern? But when you look at the number of men in the field being 4%, you can see that that's a disproportionate representation. Um, and that's and that's just across the board. And so I think that's kind of the key to remember that it's not about the overall percentage. You know, the majority are still women, but it's this, it's this disproportionate representation relative to the composition of the field. Right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think the other key point that you raise is this issue 
I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, gender or women's issues really only apply, you know, to women. And how does this, you know, I hear this a lot, you know, I, I have two boys and, and, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, you don't have to worry as much, you know, because you have two boys. It's like, no, absolutely not. This applies across the board. And that's sort of the point of implicit bias um, is that it's, it's really helpful to think of implicit bias as being a habit of mind or something that isn't at a conscious level. And so we all have the same, or at least similar to some extent, socialization experiences. Um, and that was for me something when I took the course, it was really difficult because everywhere I looked, I could see these implicit biases operating when maybe I just hadn't had an awareness around that um, before. And you know, one of the examples that we give in our paper, which I think is a really concrete, easy example for people to understand is this, you know, idea when you have children, you know, we generally will buy little girls, dolls, you know, you've, I'm sure everyone's seen the doctor's kits that are pink, um, you know, and the little boys, the action figures that are going to encourage more of those aggressive tendencies, whereas with the little girls encouraging more of the nurturing, um, helpful tendencies. And so these experiences we're having from the time that we, you know, can process anything, we're, we're being exposed to these biases. And so they're really not on a conscious level. It's not something that you know, many people are very aware of explicit bias. They're very careful not to be biased in their interactions as they perceive it. It's more of these subtle issues. Yeah. And you know what? I think, I think I agree with you there, but as a brown person in academia, in science, in, um, in our field, people are, they're careful to the extent that they know that this has been a societal yeah. thing, a, a PC, not so PC thing to say. So let me say that again. They're careful right, to right. the extent yeah. that they know what they're going to say could be perceived poorly. The stuff they don't know yet, oh, they say the heck out of those stuff, those things. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And then they learn, oh, those people don't like that. Let me not say that. Right. Not because it hurts them, but because it hurts them and it makes me look like an ass, right? So it's oh, like, right. it goes both ways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Or, I mean, even if you think of the classic example, you know, as you mentioned, my husband's also in medicine and, you know, he'll travel for meetings and it's very rare that people will ask, will say to him, oh, you know, how, how are the kids handling all your travel? Oh my Whereas God. That's a very common, right. That's a very common question that I get. And so that's even just kind of a, you know, minor example of how. That is, that know, is actually, just, yeah. you know, it's not as minor as you think for the, for the receiver. I cannot tell you how many yeah. times people say that to me. I, you know, I explain to people who aren't in our field that there aren't that many swallowing experts on the globe. So by virtue of that, we all get to travel extensively throughout the world because who else are you going to ask? You know what I'm saying? Like, right. There aren't that many of us. We got to go to Japan. We got to go to New Zealand. They, they need my expertise yeah. and we need theirs. We want them to come over here too. But yeah, when they absolutely. ask that question, it's not how did you get to go to so many places? It's also followed up with how's your husband dealing with that? And usually it's like, and what, what, please talk, say more. So I don't feel like I owe them an explanation. I'm like, why are you asking me that question? And that's the part where they can't answer. They're like, well, I assume that he wouldn't be, why do you assume that? Well, because what man would want and why? The more you ask why, the more they realize they were just told that this is not the way the world usually goes. And they don't have, they don't really know why they feel that it's inappropriate. Exactly. Oh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's also important to recognize, at least in my experience, that that comes from women 
as frequently as oh, it yeah. does from men. Oh, if yeah. not more frequently, actually. Yeah. Um, how many yeah. times so have really you dealt highlights. with, yeah. yeah, and how many times have you been asked, how do you do it all? You're a machine. It's like, no, yes. I'm not a machine. I, I'm, then that, the guy next to me with the same number of grants, etc. you know, you're assuming he doesn't, he's not expected to be as involved in his family and therefore he has all this time. Maybe that's not true. Maybe he's a very right. involved parent who has difficulty getting all the papers and all the grants and getting, you know, promoted just like me. But because I'm a woman, you assume that I, I, I'm torn. Oh, I'm so torn. How will I do this? Right. And then I get, exactly. I end up getting more accolades because I am a woman and have done the same thing or, you know, in maybe some cases better than men just because, well, for her, she's, and she's got two kids. Oh my goodness. You are a superwoman. Right. And, and then thinking, you know, how that impacts men equally just in different ways that there is this pressure not to show this other side you know not to need to have that same balance or not you know sort of this expectation that they won't have those same, that same level of responsibility which just isn't the case right um so yeah so i think it's equally damaging to both men and women so let me ask you yeah. this what tell me a little bit more about the role that you think in our field women play in these numbers because here's what i think um, and this happens a little bit more. This is going to be a foreign example, example, and maybe that word foreign is actually helpful here. Um, as somebody <laughs> who is born and raised in Toronto, I interacted with a very wide range of ethnicities and races. And in a group of us who were all friends of the same age and represented many, many places on the planet, um, there would be quite a difference in cultural expectations for academic excellence. And there are people from countries in from the Asian continent where there was this assumption that they are doing better because, well, they look, they have this physical attribute, therefore they're good at these things. And then others who come from countries that aren't expected to do well academically were like, well, if you're doing well, God, she's a genius. Good Lord. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so right. sometimes I think we bring that into the male female dynamic. So males have, um, in the paper, we use the term agentic. Am I saying that correctly? Right. So I've, I've read right. that word very much. I've actually realized I rarely say that word. So I'm like, am I saying it right? Oh, right. And then <laughs> women right. being more communal, right? Women are expected That's to right. be nice. It's why women are rebelling against being told to smile when they walk on the street. When a guy goes, you should smile more. It's like, yeah you're talking to me. That's yeah. why my frown appeared. Stop talking. Well, actually, actually, maybe that's something only talking. I think. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so sometimes, yep. uh, sometimes I think about those things and I think that the benefit is that for males who are more agentic, meaning that they tend to be more direct, um, the expectation to be nice is not there. Uh, uh, that whole idea of being more um, assertive and that kind of thing, it, right. No one thinks anything of it. And so if they make a power move that benefits them, they go, people go, ooh, he's powerful, he's strong, he's doing what a man should do. He's not taking it like a girl, right? It's um, consistent with what we would expect. Exactly. It's consistent with what we'd expect, what we've been told to expect. But if a woman does exactly. the same thing, she's a bitch, right? Exactly. So, so yeah. sometimes people will say, well, of course men are doing better. They tend to be more assertive and aggressive, and they're not waiting for somebody to tap them on the shoulder and say, I think you're ready for a PhD. But that might right. not necessarily be the case. So are, is it possible that women are playing a role in, in, um, make, in finding 
agentic, women who are naturally more agentic to be more of a challenge and difficult to sort of understand. And maybe they're not supporting that maybe natural drive they have. And then assuming that the communal woman someone who naturally tends to fit those stereotypes or maybe they they do it and they don't really realize they're doing it because they feel like that's what they're supposed to do whatever they tend to be communal they're overlooking those those people and the men are Absolutely. like well they're expected to be this way he asked me he came and asked he put himself out there right exactly and, and yeah exactly i think it's viewed differently um yeah and you know i think again if you think about how that may impact the the man who can't comes into the field really with maybe not the goal of pursuing a phd but now there are expectations placed there that you know just based on gender alone um and again they may they may be very implicit and it may just be in these you know sort of um interactions that are not someone you know coming right out and saying well you'll you're a man so i expect that you'll pursue you know doctoral training but maybe more in you know well here's this research opportunity or you know why don't you work on this paper and just maybe giving more of those opportunities for training and then really kind of encouraging but for some men that wasn't the goal you know for many i'm sure not the goal of of entering the field initially um so there may be undue pressure also um, that comes with that. But yeah, no, well, so in the paper, we talk a little bit about this theory that was developed called social role theory, and how that kind of goes back to this historical division of labor, of, you know, men, men generally being out in the workforce, you know, years and years ago, and women tending to, you know, be more in the home and managing family related issues. And so really, it kind of makes sense that there is a basis for this and that it's just been operating in our culture for years and years. And we kind of all just come by it naturally. It's not something that, you know, we any of us really, you know, could have controlled um, in terms of our exposure. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that um, women in our field, considering that we're majority women, are definitely playing a role um, in this in this process. And again, it has to do with this idea. So we also use the term role congruity. So how, how you know, aligned are the roles that we see a man, um, behaviors of a man is exhibiting, how consistent are those behaviors with the role that we believe they should play? Um, and again, that can be in a very implicit level. Right, right. And so um, I really love, what I loved about this paper is that all of these theories, these concepts about roles and gender differences that are sort of society specific versus perhaps what somebody is born with, you know, their natural drive or ambition or somebody who has an outgoing dynamic personality, whether they're a male, a man or a female. I love that the work has been done. So it was fairly easy to apply these concepts to the paper. Um, yet we still have so much more to do as a field to understand the extent to which these may or may not impact eligible women um, in a way that can yes. fill gaps. So what's the big problem here? Well, one that we talked about that I think is pretty nicely laid out in the paper is this gap in professors, this gap in yes. faculty, and that many of the people who are retiring I don't know if the data are clear here, are predominantly, are, are disproportionately relative to the four point cent tend to be males, but there's no gear, but we haven't had this massive influx of males in our field, obviously 4.7, right? So if they're right. looking for men to replace the men, and perhaps, I don't know if it's true, perhaps overlooking eligible women, we may never fill this gap. 
we may right. need to consider any candidate, regardless of what the stereotypes are that we're told to expect and this whole incongruence we talk about. Despite that, it's possible we will fill these gaps if we look at people very broadly and say, what qualities does an individual, man or woman, need to bring to be successful, to get them interested in doing a PhD, to be the, the face of the next academic, I guess, group that helps right. to shift our field. And we might be at right. a disadvantage if we start overlooking people because they don't fit um, the criteria that um, society has told us they must fit. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if if we were a field where we had a sufficient number of men, um, then wouldn't really have this issue coming up, but we're not. Um, and, you know, I think it's a really important point that you made regarding, you know, women who may have um, behaviors or ways of interacting that tend to fit uh, more of the communal role um, being overlooked. And that, that can happen. And I think this is an important piece to consider too. It can happen, you know, on the part of faculty, sort of routing people, you know, into different trajectories, career trajectories. But it also can happen, you know, on the individual level where, you know, you've been socialized to believe that, you know, these kinds of behaviors, being assertive, being independent, leading a research program are not really consistent yeah. um, with you know, your own beliefs about yourself. And yeah. so I also think some of the work looking at leadership self-efficacy for women in particular mm -hmm. is really key because, you know, if you start to understand how, you know, there really isn't, this, this incongruence really doesn't exist. Um, it's just, it's just kind of what those, those societal messages have been. Right. Um, I think that that can be key. Yeah. So there's something you said that brings me back a little bit into what the culture that I understand more, um, academically at least, and you and I have been born and bred in among individuals who study swallowing. And as you know, there is a meeting called Dysphagia Research Society, we refer to it as DRS, um, for those right. who aren't in this area, that um, had or has a reputation for sometimes being pretty, uh, hmm, going for the jugular perhaps. Uh, where, wherein a, an individual might present and at the question period, someone might stomp to the mic and say, you don't have the validity to make those claims. You should walk back your conclusions. You don't have this. You don't have the blah, 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 that kind of thing. Right. And the person, right. everyone's looking at the person on the stage, like, oh snap, what you going to do? Like yeah. this is, and yeah. so there have been all these, uh, these documents to help people to realize that's not the way to behave, etc. So here's what's really interesting to me. Lately, I've been sort of trying to go to other meetings and just learn things other than swallowing. Um, and I, I can do that more now. And so what I've noticed is that this exists in many other places, this way of the style of communication, not just there, but also when you're on committees, dissertation committees from places outside of our field and a student who's defending can't adequately defend something and the committee is not friendly they are sure hostile or more hostile in some other fields some of the quote unquote hard sciences um right, right. <laughs> where there are yeah, predominantly men talking to yeah. other men and they dare anyone to say to them that wasn't nice 
why did you ask him to defend his hypothesis? That was your tone. Your question was fine, but your tone scared him. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> all, it's so culturally unacceptable in that they would look at you like, get out of my face, right? So right, something right. really interesting happened one year at DRS, and I won't say names, but there was a female who was presenting, and she was on the younger side, and then there was a male who was on the older side. He went to the microphone and got beat up for not the question, but the way the question was asked. And I do remember feeling like if the tables were turned and this older male established person was saying something and the female who was younger had a good point, people would say, you go girl, which please, I hate that phrase, but I just needed to say it. Um, they'd, be, <laughs> they'd be given her high fives like that's right because this person had a reputation for doing this at the mic and if he got it from a a younger female it's like that's what i'm talking about show them who you are i don't think that's fair as scientists as scientists yeah. we're supposed yep. to that's the nature of the job right and so i'm bringing this analogy up because we actually are in a field where critique is the bread and butter of what we do you don't get anything without being bludgeoned you know what i'm saying right. that's just the way it is you submit a grant People are going to trash it. You submit it. That is peer review. And peer review focuses far more on the negatives than the positives. Yet, that Although, is... Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, though, I wonder, you know, we would assume that it would be that that sort of approach from the young female, you know, approaching the microphone and giving that critique would be viewed that way. However, it's possible that it could actually go the other direction, where someone who's really forward, really assertive, you know, in a being, you know, in a bit more of a critical manner as a woman might actually be perceived more negatively because of that, you know, incongruity with You're role. Probably, you know, I mean, that's I, a good point. Seen, I mean, I've seen that as well, um, where, you know, in a mixed committees, dissertation committees, you know, and so on, you know, you'll have male participants and female and where the females, I, at least my perception is maybe don't feel as comfortable um, being as forward or blunt um, in feedback. And that again, could be some of these operating biases that are kind of underlying behavior. I love what you just said because I, so let me say that I think that in the, the DRS uh, scenario I just described, because it was an older established male who was known for being hostile at the mic, True. it's yeah. like he needed yeah. it and it was so good it came from you, right? Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, completely absolutely. agree with you. Yeah. I, I, can you please, can somebody please send me a shirt or a hat or a button that says agentic AF, because that is who I am. I am so agentic, it doesn't even make sense. Like if you've never heard we me before, make that happen. oh my God, oh my God, yeah. that is me, I'm agentic <laughs> AF, right? And so what that means is that I am that person you're talking about in the committee meetings where I asked a very direct question um, and I need an answer so that I can figure out whether or not what you're saying is honestly worth listening to anymore, right? I'm, right. Non yeah. I'm not unapologetic about it and I value feedback as well. And so what, yeah. hap what happens is people often get very afraid and I sometimes wonder if it would be the same thing if it was a man with, the known, with a known personality type this way. I think they just don't expect it. So they're busy trying to reconcile these differences and while yes. she looks like this, but yet her mouth sounds like that. I, I, I can't take this information in.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's so interesting because there's such a difference between, you know, being direct and forward about something and then crossing a line to being disrespectful, you know, and that's, that's really, you know, I think that women generally when we, you know, do tend to be more direct um, and straightforward about our thoughts or, you know, reactions to something that sometimes that can I think it can be perceived and as, you know, kind of crossing over more quickly into that, the other category when it's really not appropriate and it wouldn't be applied the same way if it were a man. So I think that's. And why? So if I have to say, I love that you said that. So the crossing into the disrespectful category is so interesting because let me think of the root of that. And I, I'll bring in being a uh, brown person in the United States because um, I can't bring in Canada because I was never, I never had a career in Canada left when I was 14. But since I've been here, there have been moments where people assume that I come from this horrible circumstance and it's so amazing I made it this far considering how hard it probably was for me as a black person who didn't have food to eat. And, you know, like that's not my history. My family was certainly working class, but I never went without a meal. I, you know, didn't come up in horrible schools. But there sometimes is this assumption that if I said that was my my existence, I go, yep, just like I thought, right? Fine. So yeah. in those situations, when and if I'm in a circumstance where there's all white people or all white males or whatever, and I'm the only female brown person, which is very common, um, and I put a point out there that maybe hits to the heart of the issue, and maybe it puts somebody off because actually their claims are wrong, Sometimes people are like, good for you. And other people are like, how dare she? We, she yeah. should be happy to be here. That is so disrespectful. He is so and so in his field. So what you're saying is if his colleague with the same years of experience and accolades said the same thing, it would be like, well, he, their, their peers, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't mean it that way. They can talk that way. But if I say the right. same thing, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm simply saying your claims about the physiology are this. However, we know this. Can you help me explain that same question? Yes. Help me understand that same question for me is disrespectful because somebody, you know, scooped me off the ghetto. I should be glad to be here. We scraped you off the floor, lady. What are you doing? Be, you yes. know, be grateful. So I'm wondering if yes. for women in general, regardless of race in a situation, it's like, why is she doing this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we interpret, I think we on a subconscious level, most of the time, I think, um, at least people who are, you know, intending to operate appropriately in, in social situations, that's their goal. That's their intent. I think we often interpret behavior, you know, we have to be interpreting behavior based on what we under, what we, you know, perceive about the individual, whether it be gender, race, you know, what are, what are the factors that we're kind of taking that behavior in the context of, um, and becoming more aware of that, I think is, is key to change. Like we have to, we have to be able to identify. So one of the things I wanted to make sure to mention, um, because this was, it was really eye-opening for me, uh, through Harvard, there was the development of the implicit association test or the IAT. Um, and we can maybe provide a link, um, for listeners because it, it would be really interesting for, for people to actually go through and take this test, but it's basically a dual categorization test that looks at the strength of association between names that are male, you know, you would assume are male or female, so very clearly gendered names, and words that categorize people as either being a leader or being in more of a supportive role. And so you you kind of, so for example, you'll have a name, you know, say Nicole, and then underneath that um, caregiver, and then, you know, it'll flash up and say, you know, another female 
sounding name and then it'll say scientist and you basically have to respond so it looks at your response time to these combinations of terms um, and it was really eye-opening to me because coming out of that test I was able to see how um, on an implicit level how biased I am against women in science and so you know I might assume I would assume that I have no biases against women in science. I'm a woman in science. Like, how could, yeah. I, how could I be biased against that? And Nicole, so, you're a woman in yeah. science writing about women in science. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it couldn't get more. Exactly. <laughs> Even more. We've got a whole nother level, right? Exactly. I should be, I should be the biggest supporter. Um, and so it, it just shows how, you know, really I may, and so now obviously I'm aware of this and I work on it, you know, at an explicit level, um, but you know, what kinds of decisions would I make if I wasn't aware of that in terms of a male student or a female student without even realizing the kind of counseling I'm giving, the opportunities I'm giving to people. Um, and so, yeah, and there, and you can look at that. It's not just, uh, there's also a test, I believe it's specific to race. Mm -hmm. There is, um, I took it and I failed it horribly. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there, there's also religion, weights. You can look at implicit associations towards a variety of things. But, um, but I really think that's an important activity to go through just to kind of, because you might be listening to this thinking, you know, oh, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I know I don't have any of these biases operating. So what you're saying um, but is, it's definitely so what you're saying is we come into a situation with certain assumptions that mm -hmm. we don't even know we have, right? Right. And then what ends up happening is there's something that challenges those assumptions. And initially there is a conflict between what it is that we've been told, whether it's at our front of our mind or not, and what we're seeing. And that is the implicit period, but the explicit ability is for me to say, okay, right now this is challenging what I think I know about X group or X situation. I need to rethink that in this moment right. and not act on it because maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe, exactly. maybe it's different. And that is, yeah. but in order to do that, you first need to realize that every human being, including yourself, does that. And maybe it goes, you know, obviously, if you think about, um, I don't know, Homo erectus, who the heck else before we came along, needed to do that to know, is that my boy running toward right. me or is that a bear? Like, do I run exactly. or do I not yeah. run? Like, what, what cubby hole does he live in? The one that's exactly. going to kill me or the We've one that's giving me food? <laughs> exactly. We've got to have those stereotypes operating. Like, yeah. they, are, they can be protective. But that's one of the things that we talk about, too, you know, just in providing strategies. Like, what can we do as a field to address some of these issues? And one of the things that's been looked at quite a bit in academic medicine and in the business world is this idea of, you know, unambiguous or un ambiguous criteria for promotion or advancement. So if the criteria isn't clearly laid out, we automatically go to those stereotypes or those, you know, operating implicit biases. We, we just don't know what to make of it. And so we have to lean on something that's familiar um, and, that, and that may be protective in some situations. So, you know, it's really about bringing, making clear criteria um, that are unambiguous, but also making some of those assumptions more at the forefront so that we are, we know they're operating and we can overcome them. And there are some things that both men and women can be guilty of for areas where women have no other option. So if you're a woman of child rearing age, we know on one hand you cannot ask in an interview, it's illegal to ask anything about if they're married or if they're planning on having kids, because that's never right. really gone in favor of women. On the other hand, right. <laughs> if you, you already know 
that they're of childbearing age, you can't unknow exactly. that and you can't think, okay, so during this period, I'm going to need so-and-so and if she does get pregnant, blah, blah, blah. So the thing is people can think those things and that, that's the area where it really is important for people to understand what biases they're, they're entering a situation with, into, with. Absolutely. And that was one of the key pieces for me of the um, course that I took and then, you know, delving into this literature a bit more is just that, you know, initially my response was, well, if this is our common socialization experience and everyone has these biases, what can really be done about it? I mean, it just it's just something I'm going to have to fight for most of my life and my career. And, you know, that can be really discouraging place to be. Um, and so it was just really um, empowering to hear the strategies that can be taken to approach situations and just realizing that there are these biases operating, that it's not, it's not always in many cases intentional. And, you know, as a woman going into a situation, what can I do to really minimize those biases and approach it in a way that I'm aware this is happening, but I have strategies to deal with it. And that, I think that can be really empowering for women. Right, for sure. Um, I do think in this uh, Me Too movement era, where things like mansplaining and whatnot are becoming things that we both say and sometimes laugh at, but also really, you know, people have a, they didn't know that it was something else somebody it was something somebody else was experiencing. Like, oh my God, is this is this radiologist really explaining the epiglottismy right now? Like, I cannot <laughs> believe he's telling me that the flap is the reason for everything. Like, let me tell you oh, about flaps, yeah. brother. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, and I so, think we so, all know somebody who does that. Oh my that. gosh. Yep. And so oh, sometimes, yeah. sometimes those things happen and you get confused between, is this just the culture of physicians in general when interacting with therapists or speech pathologists or was there just one key person who he worked with before who maybe was less prepared and i'm having to undo that whole stereotype that that one person maybe inflicted upon our field or is this really a gender issue or is it so we could have the the type of degree you have the previous experience it could be the gender the point is we may never know which layer it is i add the race layer right. onto that myself right and yeah. then the, and then yeah. the youth the youth is another era a situation yeah. well is it because i'm 25 and, and new and this person is 55 and has been around and has seen more floras than me like how yeah. what what layer is it you may never know the layer what you right. need what is important is the extent to which you're aware of these possible layers. And you are, one thing that I think really, and I know it's not always the case, conquers a lot, doesn't conquer all, is being highly skilled and very aware of where you might be, yes. the, the way that people will perceive you. So you can anticipate them, not in a way where you become anxious, but in a way where you know where how to manage your dials. So I dial right. up, I will dial, I will dial down my tendency to code switch into certain dialects just for fun and i will sound as standard american english as possible when i explain things i give them great eye contact and i'm as accurate as possible and i'm okay with stuff i don't know that maybe i shouldn't know but i can find out those kinds of things go a long way for getting earning individual respect those aren't the only solutions those are just things that i tend to do because if you sit there and try to figure out which layer it is you're really going right. to kind of have some issues right oh yeah competence is always going to help Right. Like if you're if you're confident in the situation, that's and you're right. Communication style, I think, is huge as well. Now, you said, um, did you say competence or confidence or both? Actually, competence, but okay. absolutely. Confidence is yep. huge, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. 
your ability to yeah portray that you're confident in your in your interpretation your recommendations oh yeah I think that goes a long way but you know when they look at um they're I think it's Molly Karn's work, but also the work of others looking at reviews. So, you know, when you're on this faculty advancement, in this faculty advancement process, you have to submit grants to the National Institutes of Health. And they have actually looked at the, like the um, written critiques of faculty submitting these career development awards with just the difference being female versus male, you know, very similar credentials across the board, same number of publications, same level of grant funding, and you can see that the critiques that come back are different in terms of the, um, they count the number of agentic words that are used, adjectives versus, you know, communal, um, and so just even, you know, you just being evaluated in a very objective way, just having a difference in gender can influence that, so you're right, when you have layers of, you know, sort of status within the medical system, you know, physician versus therapist, and then some of these other factors adding on to that, you know, just even if your credentials and your competence are equal to, you know, the person next to you who just also does not have all of these other features, you know, you're going to kind of get a knock there. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately you do kind of really have to, you know, be at that, you know, consistent higher level in terms of performance. Yeah. And it's just something that we know to be true. Right. You know, so you, you can, yeah. And the thing there is that. that's when you don't exactly know. So what you're describing, Nicole, are closed reviews. When you're looking mm -hmm. to hire faculty, unlike peer reviews of papers and grants where they have to write down the information and give it to you and it's gone through many layers of reiteration and correction um, that's different from if you're applying yes. for a position be it in a clinical setting or in a, a research setting or whatever the setting is where these people are looking at the paperwork they've interviewed and they're talking about you you might just find out you didn't get the job but you don't hear all of these things that are happening that impact your advancement um, exactly. And so that's why it's even more important because the closed reviews don't require somebody to explain themselves and they, there's no paper trail going to them. Um, and so there's obviously there's no way that we can control all the variables. But I do think that what you're talking about, and I have seen that paper, um, and I know that Molly's done some work in that area as well, mm -hmm. is, is really important for the kinds of things we're doing. And I, I will say, for bringing it back again to a swallowing specific situation where you know it's not just 95% females it's also 95% females in a environment that is highly medical most of the people will probably be administrators and physicians who are telling you or your your uh, director of rehab who are telling you what to do and i suspect that many of them are males that it's not 95% female right and right, in those situations right. In those situations, um, crumbling under the pressure is probably easier, but boy, oh boy, it is so important that a confident, competent individual can stand up for what the patients need. And it's okay to have a conversation with your fellow SLPs who've handled things differently and say, I'm having trouble with this. So it's not just taking the implicit bias test to say, um, am I somebody who does inflicts this on other people? you might also want to find out, am I someone who inflicts this on myself, right? Do Absolutely. I have, right? Do I have a ton of self-doubt? Yes. Do I feel like right. I'm an imposter? And as a result, there's imposter yeah. syndrome, which you know about, which is someone who's in a situation where they feel like their expectations are different what they actually are able to do. 
Um, yeah. Whether it's true or not is not the factor, but sometimes they go in saying, I don't belong here. This is, I don't understand all this medical terminology. These men who have not been academically socialized around because all my degrees are in speech pathology are directly asking me questions on a, in an area and swallowing that I'm barely prepared for. That's another layer. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when you were talking about sort of the composition, you know, that in many of these situations, it's interacting with men. It also is this this idea of stereotype threat oh, where yeah. women, That's a big one. you know, in leadership positions or, you know, dealing with a situation like the one that you described may have some concern that their performance would confirm whatever that person was expecting of them based on a stereotype. Um, so one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, in doing some of this review um, is that there was a study that looked at women who performed a math task. Oh, I love this other, study. Women alone who yep. performed a math task, right? And then women in the context of other women performing the same math test. And the women who performed alone had poor performance versus women with other women had improved performance on the math on the math test. So it's this idea, you know, that when you're in the context of other women doing something that maybe, you know, you've been socialized to believe is less, you know, less congruent, you know, with your gender, you will perform um, better because you have that, that, you know, group kind of dynamic. Um, so it's, it's this idea that, you know, when you're in those situations, there is that fear of that concern that you may not perform to the level and then you would, you know, be confirming whatever those stereotypes are. Um, so that can be an issue too. So that's interesting. If being a woman is the only uh, box that would be checked on the U.S. Census that would make you uh, less than. <laughs> but what was interesting is, and I I'm yeah. hope I'm not butchering what I recall about the study, because uh, someone's going to say, can you post the link to that paper about so-and-so? And I'm like, crap. But here's, yeah, yeah. here's what I recall, and then maybe I'll update it and edit it later. Yep. I, I yep. thought I remembered a, a similar study where it was a math test among Asian females. And half of them had to check off demographic information, and it was just, are you male or female? The other half had to demographic, uh, check off demographic information where they identified as Asian or not. The individuals ah. who identified as female did more poorly than the ones who identified as Asian. And it's uh, the idea of pulling from the stereotype that either benefits you yeah. or doesn't benefit you. So right. in that case, exactly. they had, they had, there was uh, maybe another layer there to think about, well, I'm thinking about my being Asian and that stereotype benefits me. So in right. this math exactly. test, the performance is different. Now I'll tell you one thing, I could never solve for X. This is a thing that you can remind <laughs> me about. You can tell me anything. There's nothing that's gonna help me, okay? I'm not helping. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just an issue. It doesn't, that's kind of the point, right? It, it's, nature not nurture right yeah exactly. right exactly well exactly. nicole i just yeah. want i just want to say that this is partly why it's been so great do you guys hear how refreshing she is when i hear you oh. talk it's like someone just popped open a can of coke and you know in the commercials you hear that oh, that effervescence. oh my gosh well, that's what it's like talking me. to you i've also been oh. enjoying i've also been enjoying hear you say wisconsin so much <laughs> Because it, I mean, if you guys think she's planning around, like she's totally Midwestern. She's not from Wisconsin. You're from, you're from the Chicago I'm area. From Chica Chicago. I'm from Chicago. You fixed it. You fixed it. Yeah, you were gonna I, say I Chicago. fixed it there, but I definitely have the combined <laughs> Chicago 
Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like just a big mix at this point. I can't even distinguish anymore. It kind of reminds <laughs> me of my good friend and colleague, Emily Plowman, who's from Australia. And she always says, Wisconsin. I'm like, is there an East Consin? Like, But she's from Australia. So, you know, and my family's Jamaican, so there are a bunch of jokes there. But um, anyway, it's been great talking about this issue. The good news is that we can talk more about it if you happen to be going to the American Speech Language Hearing Association ASHA meeting. Nicole and I recently learned that our talk on this topic is, did we choose an hour? Did we get an hour? I think it's an hour. Yeah. It might be two even. I'm Ooh, not sure. We better find some content. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, exactly. But we, we have been good info there. Oh, for sure. Um, we have been um, accepted to talk about this at that meeting. And so we hope that you guys will share this widely. If there's anybody who you think might be interested in talking about it, we get a lot of our inspiration and ideas from individuals who have similar anecdotal stories or have read other papers who are like, oh gosh, I know about this study on XYZ. Um, what I'm saying is, can you help us with our talk? Because uh, we have yeah, two hours please. to go. Uh, we would so, love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, come out to that if you can. Either way, this has been an enjoyable talk. I think it's an under-discussed area. This is, to my knowledge, the only paper about gender stereotypes in our field. Is that right? That's right. And you know, I think our goal really with this was just to bring have these discussions and encourage discourse about some of these issues and also bring it to the attention of ASHA as well because I right. think there's quite a bit that can be done. Yeah, and it's in the American right, and I we forgot to say yeah. sorry to interrupt. It's in the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, AJSLP. Um, and so if you are an ASHA member, then you can access it for free. It's only been accepted. It has not yet been published. So there's a little time between right. we get the email saying, yep, it's accepted and when it's actually published. So keep an eye out on the Down the Hatch uh, Facebook page or on the Twitter page or even on my page. I'll publish it. I'll post it publicly um, when the link is available to actually lead to the paper for you guys to read. Great. Thank right. you so much for having hey, me. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us about this. That was cool, eh? That was so much fun. I just love talking with you. It's like as soon as we started talking, I'm like, okay, yep, I can do this. This is just ENS and I having a great conversation. So I usually go a little crazy with things I say because they're like, okay, I didn't say that crazy thing, so I'm not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> you and I.